Good morning, class. I call you class this morning because we're going to learn something today. And what we learn today, quite literally and without embellishment, could change our lives. I want you to take your Bible and go to Daniel chapter 4. Okay, Daniel chapter 4. In the middle of your Old Testament, there are five poetic books. They begin with Job, then Psalm, then Proverbs, then Ecclesiastes, then Song of Songs. Following those five poetic books, there are five books known as the major prophets, primarily because of the length of these books, primarily because of the amount of revelation in those books. They begin with Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and then Daniel is the fifth. Go to Daniel chapter 4. In the weeks that are building up to Christmas, I want to show you what the world received when it received a baby born in Bethlehem. In other words, in the four Sundays we have leading up to Christmas Sunday, I want to teach you four attributes of God that are demonstrated in the Christmas story. Because when the world received God's gift of Jesus Christ, the world actually received the attributes of God the Father. Now, I know you're familiar with the Christmas story. We talk about it every year. I've been doing this a long time. I've put together over 30 Christmas series throughout the decades. This year, I wanted to do something different because I know you know who the wise men were, and I know about their journey following the star, and I know you know about there was no room for them in the inn. Joseph and Mary had returned to Bethlehem, which was Joseph's hometown, to be taxed. And while they were there, they she gave birth, uh, gave birth to the Son of God in a stable, a manger, a cave, actually. So instead of covering all of that very familiar ground, I want to dive in a lot deeper. I want to dive in deeper and show you the character and nature of our Creator as it is revealed in the Christmas story. Now, we call the birth of Jesus the incarnation. Are you familiar with this term? The incarnation. It means deity in flesh. It means God in humanity. Jesus, according to the Word of God, was both 100% divine deity, God, and 100% human. He was God incarnate. The human person of Jesus, even though there was nothing about him that stood out, he did not look remarkable somehow. He was about as average looking as anyone in that era and in that place that very average-looking, unremarkable human being was actually God with skin on, God incarnate. In the person of Jesus Christ, a baby born through natural process, we have the fullness of the Trinity that is demonstrated. The very attributes of the Father, everything that God is and everything God is like can be seen in his Son, the incarnation, Jesus, because he was both human and man as well. So over the next four weeks, we're going to examine at least four of those attributes. Today, we're going to talk about sovereignty. Sovereignty. Over the course of Jesus's life, he demonstrated his own power and authority over the natural laws of the universe. In his brief 33 years of living on planet earth, Jesus revealed there was something special, incredible actually, about him. Jesus revealed, according to John chapter 1, that he was the creator and sustainer of all things. Paul said that every part of the universe is held together by Jesus Christ, the baby born in Bethlehem. As you read through the Gospels and the story of Jesus, you find out that Jesus could walk on water. 
That's pretty amazing. Jesus gave hearing to deaf ears. He gave sight to blind eyes. He gave strength to withered legs. Jesus actually raised people from the dead on a few occasions. Jesus demonstrated that he had power and authority over the natural laws of the universe. But God's sovereignty, in my opinion, is most eloquently demonstrated in the timing of Christ's birth, the timing of when it all came together. It comes from Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Paul wrote, But when the set time had fully come, that's a very important phrase, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. I said a moment ago that while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to give birth. Do you realize if he'd have come a few weeks earlier, they wouldn't have been in Bethlehem? If he'd have come a few weeks later, they wouldn't have been in Bethlehem. They were in Bethlehem at a very specific moment in time because God decided to do it that way. 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, Micah, the prophet, said it would be done that way. Not only that, the Romans were in charge of the world at that time, practically. And Romans, the Rome ruled with an iron fist. The hatred that the Jews had for the Romans because of their domination, because of their lack of grace, their lack of mercy, caused Israel to swell up with cries of their Messiah. They were looking for their Messiah at exactly that right time. Because the Romans were so prolific and proficient at building a road system, as soon as the baby was born and people traveled to their hometowns, the news could spread like wildfire. A king has been born all because of those roads. The language of the day was Koine Greek, a common language, thanks to Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. Because everyone basically spoke the same language, the story of the birth of Jesus Christ could spread like wildfire. Paul writes, when the set time had fully come. You realize, for thousands upon thousands of years, God has been pushing history, driving history, preparing the way, and now at just the right moment in time, at precisely the right moment in time, Jesus is born. Only a sovereign creator could orchestrate a critical moment like that in time. The word sovereign means supreme or ultimate power and authority. When we say that God is sovereign, we're saying that God is the supreme and the ultimate power and authority in the world. He is the king over all other kings. He is the Lord over all other lords. There is not one person, not one nation, not one thing that can go above or beyond God, for God is sovereign. At the height of his military career, Napoleon was asked if God was whether or not was on the side of France or not. And this world conqueror smugly replied, I believe God is on the side with the greatest artillery. <laughs> and then came Waterloo. And Napoleon not only lost that battle, he lost his empire. And much later in his life, a broken and defeated military genius humbly acknowledged that man proposes, but God disposes. A statement like that reveals that Napoleon 
came to understand the sovereignty, not of his empire or his leadership, but the sovereignty of God. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. That's like saying, I don't care how many horses you have, God determines who wins. That's why I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. I don't care how good your team might be, God determines who wins the battle. I don't care how much artillery you possess. I don't care how overpowering your military may be. I don't care the size of your army. The battle belongs to the Lord. Psalm 33 verse 10 says, The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart throughout all generations. Why? Because he is in charge. He is sovereign. I suppose for centuries, eons, uh, millennia, perhaps, mankind, humankind, we've wrestled with the idea of power and authority. I mean, who really is in charge, we wonder. And the more educated, the more advanced, the more knowledgeable we become, the more we begin to convince ourselves that we're in charge. Man is in charge of the planet. Governments are in charge of the earth. I'm in charge. I've elected the right government to keep me safe, we convince ourselves. I put the right man in the White House to make my life better. My exercise regimen is going to ensure me a long and healthy life. I have the right doctor to solve my health problems. I take the right medicine to heal me. We convince ourselves of all of these things. My 401k is so enormous, I will always feel secure. I got news for you. The story in the book of Daniel says otherwise. So who really is in charge? God or man? It's a question we're all going to ask at some point. Today I want to show you that God's in charge. God is totally in control because God is sovereign. And the sooner we accept that, and the sooner we act on that in our faith walk, the merrier our Christmas will become. In Daniel chapter 4, the dialogue revolves, or the whole chapter revolves around a dialogue between Daniel the prophet and Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon. You will recall that at one time in Israel's history, primarily due to their disobedience, God, the sovereign father, allowed Babylon to exile or conquer Israel. Daniel, along with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they wind up in the capital city of Babylon. They're in service to the king. In Daniel chapter 4, the king has had a troubling nightmare. It is a dream that is so vivid, he wakes up shaking and sweating. Now, I've had dreams like that. I've never tried to make anything out of them. But in biblical days, God used dreams to speak to people quite often. And so when the king had this troubling nightmare, he called in all of his wise men, all of his advisors. He told them the dream, and he said, now interpret it for me, but no one could. So finally, Daniel is brought in. And Daniel not only interprets the dream here in chapter 4, but he points his finger in the face of that vain king Nebuchadnezzar, that prideful, arrogant, self-sovereign king Nebuchadnezzar, and teaches him a lesson as well. Nebuchadnezzar believed that he... Because of all of his accomplishments, all of his power, all of his authority, all of his money, he believed that he was sovereign. He's about to learn otherwise. Look at verse 24 of Daniel chapter 4. This is the interpretation, your majesty. 
And this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. Note the juxtaposition of those two terms. Majesty is a kingly title. It's bestowed on an individual by other people. But Most High stands head and shoulders, supreme above the term majesty. Daniel wants to put him in his place. Verse 25. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and that he gives them to anyone he wishes. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, I hope you're getting the point. You're not sovereign. God is sovereign. The only reason that you're king and the only reason you have any authority and power and influence is because God, the sovereign, has allowed it to be. Verse 26, the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. That was part of the dream. Part of the dream was the tree is cut down, the stump remains, and the roots remain intact. Daniel is explaining what this means. It means that you can get your kingdom back when you acknowledge, keyword, keyword, when you acknowledge. That means not just admit. That means act on, recognize, live in such a way as to acknowledge that God is sovereign and you are not. Keep reading. Verse 27, uh, nope, we'll pick up in verse 29 in just a moment. Daniel is not simply urging the king to see the sovereignty of God. Like, like we might see or witness the sovereignty of God if we jumped into one of Elon Musk's rockets and shot up to the moon and looked out the window and we could see the moon in reference to the earth. We could perhaps see Mars and the sun and all the stars. And we would say, wow, God is powerful. God is supreme. That's a a witness of God's sovereignty. That's not what Daniel is asking of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel wants to make sure Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges it. He accepts it, but it's bigger than that. Because he recognizes the sovereignty of God, it's going to change how Nebuchadnezzar rules. Daniel wants the king to embrace God's sovereignty. And 12 months later, Daniel's prophecy is fulfilled. Skip down to verse 29. Daniel 4, verse 29. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, now listen to this. Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? I'd say the king's pretty stuck on himself. I'd say the king feels pretty good about his accomplishments Remember, Daniel is the prophet. He's a captive. He's in exile. Babylon has overrun Israel. But again, notice the terms again. The majesty, my mighty power, this is what I've built. That tells me that Nebuchadnezzar may have understood Daniel's interpretation of the dream, but he did not embrace it. He did not acknowledge it. That's what makes verse 31 so powerful. No sooner does he say, What he says in verse 30, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass. Seven times, we don't know exactly what that time is, but seven time periods will pass by 
for you until you acknowledge, there's the word again, that the Most High is sovereign, and you're not, over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. God was in charge, not you, Nebuchadnezzar. Your rule is only designated by the true sovereign, the true king of all kings. Verse 33, immediately what he had said, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people. He ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails were like the claws of a bird. He lost his mind is what happened, church. This stately, powerful king with all the authority of the kingdom, with all the wealth of a king, has lost his mind. He's worse than homeless. He's living in the wild like an animal. Verse 34, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. In other words, I came to my senses. I, I, I put my life in perspective. I took my kingship and my authority and my power and my influence and my wealth, and instead of seeing God through it, now I see it through God. And everything changed. Nebuchadnezzar finally accepted that God was in control. God was in charge. Nebuchadnezzar understood, this is not my kingdom, this is God's kingdom. This is not my wealth, this is God's wealth. This is not my work, this is not my dominion, this all belongs to God. Now, I want you to turn to the first of those five poetic books I mentioned earlier. Go to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38. It's the book right before the big book of Psalms in your Old Testament. One of the most eye-opening examples of God's sovereignty is seen in the story of Job. If you know anything about Job's story, you got to understand that one of the biggest elements to this story is the fact that God is sovereign. God is in control. You see, when our lives hit an iceberg and they start taking on water and our ship starts sinking, that's when we look around and wonder, is anyone in control? I didn't cause this. I didn't do this. Why has this happened to me? Is anyone out there, is anyone guiding this ship? Suffering, especially what we would call senseless suffering, kind of a piling on over the top feeling of suffering when things go from bad to worse. There's nothing like that kind of suffering to cause us to look around and wonder, is anybody in charge? Is anybody guiding this ship? Bible scholars believe that Job lost everything. He lost his children, because the text says so. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. He wound up with two things, his wife and his life. The story of Job's suffering is universal. And again, theologians believe that the story of Job's suffering actually predates the creation account written down by Moses. Did you know that? In other words, long before Moses penned the words from Genesis 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the story of Job and Job's suffering and the sovereignty of God was already in circulation. That's because many people believe that long before man would ever step outside, look up into the starlit sky and wonder, where in the world did I come from? 
How did I get here? Long before man had that question for God, man was going to ask the question, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much darkness in my life? Job's story reveals not only the sovereignty of God, but it reveals the dependence upon man to trust in that sovereignty, to cling to it. If you know the story, Job keeps suffering losses. It's one after another. They pile on themselves. It's more than anyone could bear. It is certainly over the top. Job saw it as senseless, but Job kept worshiping. He kept revering God. He kept hanging in there. He did not lose faith until finally Job got to the point where he did question God. Come on, God. I mean, surely my good far outweighs my bad, and yet my suffering far outweighs my fortune. How can this be? Finally, at the end of the book, chapter 38, there are only 42 in the entire story. God speaks back to Job. Look at verse 1 of Job 38. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, verse 2, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Who is this that obscures my plan, that tries to cover up my preordained sovereign plan with words without knowledge? Church, I am embarrassed to admit in front of you, I have prayed many prayers to a sovereign God using words without knowledge. I have come before God on many occasions and begged for something I believe to be a 10 on the importance scale. They'd give it two years, and it was a one. Give it six months, and it was a three. God says, who comes to me with words without knowledge? Brace yourself, Job, verse 3. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me. If you understand, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. You've got all these questions for me. Surely you were there. Surely you you know how it all came to be. Who stretched a measuring line across the universe? Verse 6. On what were its footings set? Who laid its cornerstone? It continues. God keeps pounding Job with these provocative questions down through chapter 38, all the way through chapter 39, chapter 40, chapter 41, and finally we get to the very last chapter in the book, and Job sees the light. After God's relentless pounding, Job, where were you, man? Where were you when I decided how big and ever-expanding the universe was going to become? Did I consult you for your advice on how to lay things out? Did you tell me how big to make the sun? Three chapters of this. Finally, in chapter 42, Job responds. Look at verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that all things, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked me, Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. In other words, I'd like to take that back. Things too wonderful for me. Surely that's what I've done. Now, again, personally, I've been there and I've done that. I've spoken to God on my behalf based upon almost no knowledge 
about things that are far too lofty for me to understand in the first place. Keep reading. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know, verse 4. You said, listen now and I will speak, I will question you, and you shall answer me. Verse 5. Well, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Like, okay, please be patient, creator, because I'm growing. What I knew or thought I knew and now know I didn't know back then was only like hearing your voice. But now... What you've shown me, it's like seeing you with my eyes. It's the big difference between, you know, hearing someone's voice and coming up with some sort of idea of who they are, what they're about. It's a whole different level of knowledge when you meet that person face to face and you see them with your own eyes. Job is growing. Verse 6, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I'm ashamed. I am embarrassed. I despise myself. That's a sign of growth and maturity. Job is beginning to see his own insignificance in light of God's ultimate and eternal sovereignty. Hmm. What's interesting to me, we're almost to the end of the story. In fact, in my Bible, it's only another half page. You know what? God never explains himself to Job. Remember how this all began in the very beginning? There was this cosmic challenge between the enemy and God. The enemy said, no wonder Job worships you. You've given him everything. Let me take it away, and we'll see if he worships. We'll see if he remains true, and God agreed. Go ahead, test him, but don't take his life. Not one time in the remainder of the story does God explain that to Job. I find that intriguing. It's very telling. Maybe if God would have said, well, this is what this all meant, Job. This is how this came about. And this is why I'm going to richly bless you in the end. Maybe Job would have went, wow, I get it now. But that's not the point. The point is, God wanted Job to trust and revere his sovereignty. God wanted Job, like Daniel wanted Nebuchadnezzar, to acknowledge, recognize, and walk out God's sovereignty. Those are two interesting stories. Nebuchadnezzar, on the one hand, proved himself delusional. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was in charge, thought he was in control. He was delusional. Job, on the other hand, suffered so greatly that he began to doubt God. How could anybody be in charge when my life is hit with so much random suffering? Now think about this for a minute, because that's where we all live. We all live somewhere between delusion and doubt. When things are going pretty well for me, well, that's because I'm pretty smart. I'm smarter than most people, right? When things are going my way, that's because I work hard. I put in more hours than the other guy. I'm educated. I've made some brilliant decisions as leader of this church. That's delusional. That's delusional. Then when things turn sideways and the ship starts taking on water, then I start to question whether God's out there at all. Isn't that where we live? Somewhere between delusion and doubt. So what does this mean to me? God is in charge. What does it mean? 
maybe more importantly, what does it not mean? One last passage. Go to the New Testament, book of Romans, chapter 11, and verse 33. Paul wrote Romans to the Roman followers of Jesus. And in chapter 11, beginning in verse 33, if you have a study Bible, right above the, uh, the verse 33, there's the word doxology. That's a statement of praise to God that Paul is about to include in this letter to the Roman church. Verse 33 of Romans 11 reads, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. That's a pretty big start, right? Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Verse 34, I love this. Who has known the mind of the Lord? God, I know what you're thinking. That's almost irreverent to say. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Has God ever tapped anyone in this auditorium on the shoulder and said, can I have a minute of your time? I need a little advice. I've got a big decision on my plate for 2023. I'd just like to run it by you. No! Or who has been his counselor? Verse 35. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Now watch verse 36. For from him and through him and for him are, what's that next word? All things. From him, that means he is the originator of all things. And through him, that means he is the enforcer of all things. And for him, that means he is the end of all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You know what this passage tells me? This passage tells me that a wise, all-knowing, loving, sovereign father operates in realms that are beyond my comprehension. Something that took Job a long time to figure out. But think about it. If truly all things are from him, through him, and for him, then we must be talking about all things. We're talking about promotions and demotions. We're talking about prosperity and adversity. We're talking about tragedy and fortune, sorrow and joy. I mean, it would envelop both illness and health, danger and safety, heartache and hope. You see, when we don't understand according to that passage, he does. When we don't know According to this doxology and the account of Job, God does. When we can't give reasons, we just can't figure it out, there is an explanation, but we may never know it. That's what it means, and that's why it's a very big deal. But I tell you what, maybe more importantly is what it does not mean. Here's what God's sovereignty does not mean. Hey, God's in control if he's already made up his mind. If he's going to do whatever he chose to do, then we might as well just relax, kick back, and do what we want. In this one text alone, starting in chapter 12 and going through chapters 15 and 16, 
Paul then starts rattling off all the responsibilities we have as followers of Jesus Christ. Because your life and my life, my faith walk in yours, our nation and its future reveal a perfect balance between God's sovereignty and our responsibilities. Chapter 12, for instance, says that as a follower of Jesus, it's my responsibility to be spiritually renewed. The transformation of how I think about life. In chapter 12, he also says it's your responsibility to act on your spiritual gift. God has gifted you to strengthen his church. Now act on that gift. We're told in chapter 12 to employ love in our relationships, to be loving to others. Chapter 13, to get involved in our government, to show proper respect to governmental authority. And the list goes on and on and on. You see, God is sovereign, but that does not mean that I don't have personal responsibility. So, I'll quit by asking you one question. Here it is. Why do I care about all this? I mean, honestly, why do I care? You came in and sat down this morning, and I'm willing to bet you, you haven't used the word sovereign five times in the last five years, right? It's just not something we talk about. So why do I care? What's the big deal? Oh, oh, there's a very big deal that lands right where we live. Don't miss the blessing, the freedom, the liberation that comes from understanding what Job understood. Let me take you back to Job 42. He came up with two conclusions as to why this matters. Remember, he said, I know, God, that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. In other words, nothing that you've decided can be undone. You asked me, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Okay, think about this for a moment. What a beautifully practical thought. What a beautifully practical idea. The fact that God is sovereign matters because I'm not his enemy any longer. I'm not a stranger. I'm his child. And according to Job, it should matter because if God is sovereign, then I don't have to be so anxious. If no purpose of God's can be thwarted, then I shouldn't care so much who sits in the White House. I shouldn't care so much whether I got passed over for a promotion. I shouldn't care so much if someone I loved and gave my heart to deserted me and left our family. Because the sovereignty of God relieves me from anxiety. So why do I worry about everything? The second reason is that God's sovereignty frees me up from needing an explanation. It liberates me. I don't have to explain every circumstance in my life. Now, look, I bring this to your attention because I know some of you people. You not only want to explain everything that's going on in your life, you want to tell everybody else how to understand everything's going on in their lives, right? Some are wired to expect a Christmas-wrapped explanation for every circumstance in their life. Why does this matter? Well, so we don't repeat it, so we don't go back and do it again, so we don't make the same mistake. Let go of that. You don't have to have an explanation. 
Sometimes businesses fail because a sovereign God decided it would be so. Had nothing to do with your work effort. Had nothing to do with your knowledge, your education. Sometimes bodies fail regardless of how many weights you lift, how many pills you take. Sometimes people die regardless of how young they are regardless of how healthy they are, regardless of who their doctor is. Why? Because God is sovereign, and some things are beyond my ability to understand, and I've got to accept it. Look, my challenge for you this week is to meditate on the idea of God's sovereignty. Embrace that beautiful blessing. When Jesus came into the world at precisely the right moment, he demonstrated that God is in control. Man, what a blessing. What a gift. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we are indeed humble as we bow before you, our sovereign. Oh, Father, forgive us when we rattle on in prayer using words that we just don't understand, talking about ideas and plans that we may never fully appreciate. Father, free us from the anxiety that comes from knowing you are in charge, you are ultimately in control, and remind us that we don't have to explain everything that happens around us. Father, go with us now, with your blessing upon each of us, as we meditate, as we we think about this week, your sovereign power and authority. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.